And if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 145. And as you do, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing our study in the heart of God. Normally, we go through books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. But in the summer, with so many people away during the summer on vacation, we have a more topical series of sermons normally. These topical series are still exegetical. They're just not going through the Bible um, paragraph by paragraph. And this summer, we're, on this, we're studying the heart of God in these morning uh, sermons, the character of God, what is God like, what Stephen Charnock called the existence and the attributes of God. And uh, we're studying the heart of God um, not for mere academic knowledge, like the way a, a veterinary student might study the intestines of a rat. Uh, we're not studying God like that. We're studying God as creatures, studying the heart of our Creator. We're studying as sinners, studying the heart of our Savior. We're studying as children, studying the heart of our Father. And our goal is to draw near to God, to worship God, to better know the One who knows us fully. That's our goal. Our goal, as Lewis would remind us, is to go further up and deeper in to the heart of God in true fellowship and worship. And this morning, we're going to be studying the attribute of goodness. I'm going to read Psalm 145. The Father's used to divide God's attributes up. We have different ways of dividing up God's attributes. We often, might often hear the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. That's very academic for a Sunday morning when you're barely uh, half-caffeinated. I apologize. Um, but the fathers actually, would they often divided the attributes of God up into the greatness of God and the goodness of God. Uh, and that's a, a much more beautiful and, frankly, pastoral way of thinking about God. And that tradition, I don't know where it began, but it might begin here, because in Psalm 145, as we read it together, you'll notice that the first, um, the first seven verses or so focus on the greatness of God, and then there's a bridge, and then verse 8 following to the end follows on the goodness of God. Whatever the case, please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. A song of praise of David, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies, or His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. 
They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord fulfills, sorry, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I apologize. I memorized this psalm in the the New American Standard, and whenever I read it, my brain keeps on supplying the New American Standard's lines, and it keeps on. um, I can read. I'm I'm not an idiot, at least not in that area. So I apologize. So we're talking about the goodness of God this morning in our sermon. We'll we'll come to Psalm 145 in a second, um, but let's, let's just think a little bit about that. Some of you may know the term goodness. Uh, come, the actual term God is a contraction of the old English word good. Um, what is God? God is good. God is good in His being. He is goodness in being, and He is goodness in action. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. You are good, God is goodness in being, and you do good, He is goodness in action. He's benevolent in His nature, He's goodness in being. He's also beneficent, He's goodness in action. He's not a a stagnant pool of perfection, but His perfections overflow in benevolence and beneficence to all of His creatures, the psalmist says. In other words, God is never sour. He's never bitter. He's never rancid or rotten. Sweetness pervades Him. The vast expanse of His glory, from the the middle all the way to the edges, if I can speak in such spatial terms of the majesty of heaven, forgive me, it's all sweetness. In Him there is no harshness, no bitterness. He's sweet. He's good. Stephen Charnock, he wrote that book, The Existence and the Attributes of God, which is just marvelous. There's a new edition of it with very helpful editorial notes uh, before each chapter. It's just a wonderful book. It'll, it's just, it'll bless your socks off. But he said, goodness is the brightness and loveliness of our majestical Creator. To fancy a God without it is to fancy a miserable, scanty, narrow-hearted, savage God, and so an unlovely and horrible being. For God is not a God that is not good. And when you think about it, actually, that's what the atheists, if you ever hear an atheist talking about God, they always speak of God in a way that's divest of goodness and beauty and loveliness. 
Actually, the God they describe sounds an awful lot more like Satan. Listen to Stephen Fry, the famous um, comedic actor from England. In response to the question of what would he say to God upon death, he stated, this is obviously in his view being surprised by the existence of God. I'd say, bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you create a world to which there is, no, to which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. In response to the interviewer's second question, and, and, and you think you're going to get into heaven like that, <laughs> he said, but I wouldn't want to get into heaven, he said. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong, he continues. Now, if I died and it was Pluto or Hades, and if it was the twelve Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks didn't pretend to not, that they didn't pretend their gods to be not human in their appetites, in their capriciousness, and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all seeing, all wise, all kind, all beneficent. Because the God that created this universe, if it was created by a God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter, an utter maniac, totally selfish. The fact that we would have to spend our life on our knees thanking Him, what kind of a God would have you do that, he said. Now, it's interesting, there's a lot we could say. The evil in the world, of course, is precisely that. It is precisely all our fault. We only have ourselves to blame. Back in the 70s, the, the, the prisoners of the Irish Republican Army used to paint their, the walls of their cells in excrement, human, their own excrement, as a protest uh, to Her Majesty the Queen and Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, though, was uniquely smart. She just shuffled the, the prisoners among the cells because she knew it's much easier to live with your own excrement than somebody else's. And, the, stu and the, uh, the prisoners cut out that malarkey immediately, right? But the fact that the walls of their cells were covered in excrement was their fault. It was their excrement, and they spread it. And likewise, the universe we live in is so full of evil. And I mean, when you forsake the goodness of God and the sweetness of God, should it surprise you that you turn away from Him and find a universe full of evil and bitterness? When you forsake the God of life, in whom life is found, rich, abundant, everlasting life, is it surprising that you turn away from Him and find a universe filled with death at every turn? The second thing I would say to um, Stephen Fry is, you still expect the universe to have meaning. Whence comes that instinct? You expect the universe to be fair. You expect the, the universe to be just. If there really is no God, that question is meaningless. There is no justice. Just the entropy of the universe winding itself down again to coldness, blackness, emptiness, and nothingness. But there's a deep instinct in the human heart from which the yearning for justice comes. Whence comes that instinct? And then, 
If God really were evil, where's the, how can you explain the beauty and the goodness of the universe? Young rivers yawn and giggle, her bright-eyed looking at, who was that just poured water on my head? <laughs> you know, there's a beauty, a beauty and a loveliness there that an evil God would never have created. And if you look about the universe, you'll see echoes of the beauty and loveliness. And you look about human beings, and while we are all to a man and a woman ruins of Adam, like a ruined castle in Scotland somewhere, um, there's still enough of the majesty of God left in us to leave you scratching that we're much more than an ape. But I digress. Now, studying God, study His being, His works forever and a day. Go in and in and into God. Go in and in and in and in and into God. And fill all of the universe, every planet, with, with libraries and filing cabinets, describing the nature of God in as exhaustive detail as you can. And you'll never in all the universe go to a planet in some far distant galaxy behind some distant nebula, and in that planet, in billions of libraries, you might find a, a filing cabinet. Open that filing cabinet and read all of the files, and they'll all tell you fresh evidences of the goodness of God, His loveliness, His beauty, and His limitless glory. Now, when we think of the goodness of God, we're getting ahead of ourselves, what do we mean when we say God is good? Right? You say, that's a stupid question. Of course, I know, what, I know exactly what I mean. Goodness is one of those words you learn as American, the first word, you know, what, how are you doing today? Good? I know what good means. What does good mean? What does goodness mean for God? And you can't use the word good in your answer. And you suddenly find yourself going, uh, <laughs> I don't know what am I going to say. What is the goodness? What do we mean when we say God is good? Well, we're speaking of His excellence. In particular, His moral excellence. He is righteous. He's holy. His intellectual excellence. He is wise. And especially His relational excellence. He's loving. Not just loving. He is love. He is kind. He is merciful to those in need. He is gracious to those who are sinful. And in that sense, actually, theologians tend to reserve the term goodness for God, for that relational excellence of God, His love, His mercy, and His graciousness. If you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism and that famous question number four that George Gillespie gave whenever they asked, the, they were going to study, study what is God, and they asked young George Gillespie, who was the youngest uh, commissioner at the Westminster Assembly back in 1643, and young George stands up and says, let's pray, O God, your most pure spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And someone said, write that down. <laughs> that, that'll do for our description of God. It was such a wonderful prayer. And um, you notice in that answer, there's no description of God's love and mercy and grace. But he talks about God's goodness at the end of it, and goodness is like a catch-all phrase, like in your Windows computer when you click on File, a drop-down list appears. And when you click on the term goodness of God in, the, in theological language, 
the love and mercy and grace of God pop down as an expansion of that phrase. And there's biblical reason for that. If you turn back in your Bibles to Exodus 33, quickly, you, you remember um, the context of this. Israel are doing their best to de-redeem themselves. Um, they've been called out of Egypt and to uh, and out into the wilderness, and Moses is up in Mount Sinai meeting God in the cloudness and the dark, thick darkness, and the thunder and the lightning, and it's terrifying. And Israel get tired of waiting. They don't like a God who keeps them waiting, and they say to Aaron, will you make us another God, a kind of a visible representation of God? We're getting tired of Moses coming back. Give us a visible representation of God, one that is easier to see, easier to worship, frankly, less scary, and more kind of ergonomic, more user-friendly. And you remember Aaron made a golden calf, a bull, and it was designed to represent God's strength. And he said, this is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And at the risk of significant understatement, God was not at all impressed. And he came down and was going to wipe Israel off the face of the ground. He was pretending, but he was going to. And Moses, as a picture of Christ, stepped in between God and the people and said, Lord, wait, wait. Which, and God intended that all the time, of course, but God stays his wrath. And rather than this golden bull being a, an opportunity for God to show his wrath, it actually became an opportunity for God to show his goodness. Moses says to God in verse 18, chapter 33, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all, notice, my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then God hides Moses in the, in, the, in, the, in the cleft of the rock, remember. But then down in verse 5 of the next chapter, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses literally made haste and fell on his face toward the earth and worshiped. Now, notice that God, God is proclaiming His name, gracious and merciful and so forth, and um, God says it's His goodness passing before Moses, His goodness, His moral, His relational excellence and glory. There's a beautiful… When I, was, when I first came to the Reformed faith, I read two books. One was A Sure Guide to Heaven by Joseph Elaine, which scared the liver out of me. It was terrifying. What is a real Christian? And it was pretty terrifying. He was, he was writing to an age awash with formalism and moralism and um, churchianity, and it was designed to expose people out of a, a, a hypocritical faith, and it scared the liver out of me, rightly so. And then 
But at the same time, I read another book called The Lifting Up of the Downcast by William Bridge, which was kind of the BAM for the medicine. And in that book, William Bridge quotes this passage. He's describing talking to a, a covenant child who's maybe concerned about their faith, how they're standing before God. And, and Bridge says, he's Yahweh. He is your God. And he's strong. Elohim is built on the term strong. He's strong and mighty to save you. And the covenant child in this kind of conversation says, but I don't deserve God's… Um, I've sinned. I deserve His judgment. Ah, that's okay. Look at, look at the next part of His goodness. He's merciful. But, but I don't deserve His forgiveness. I've, uh, I deserve only His wrath. Look at the next name. He's also gracious. It describes God's wonderful penchant, His wonderful habit of giving love to those who deserve His wrath. It's not just His love for the undeserving, it's His love for the hell-deserving. But I've sinned against God's mercy and God's grace again and again. I've committed the same sins in the same order every single day. I've made no progress. He goes, ah, but look at the next word. He's patient, slow to anger. He's not like gasoline that explodes in your face. At the slightest spark, He's slow to anger. But I have such a vast variety of evil in my heart, the young man says. And he said, but look at the next word. He forgives iniquity, the hidden crookedness of the heart, that awful cesspool in your heart. The thoughts that go through your mind are shameful. And we know it. That's the word iniquity. Iniquity. And, and then transgression, those deliberate acts of disobedience. Um, the border that God says, thou shalt not pass. Like Baxter in the morning, he has this little alarm on his neck that warns him, cross this invisible line in the, in the, in the, uh, in the yard, and your universe will change color. Sparks. Uh, electricity. And Baxter knows. He's, he, he hears anything beep, the reversing of a lawyer, uh, the lorry, my cell phone going off. He's totally neurotic. He thinks of, he's kind of like, what's happened? Uh, where's the line? But then every so often the battery will fade uh, in that neck piece of his. And he'll go near the line, there's no beep. And he goes, hmm. I know master says yes, but there's a squirrel there or somebody else walking along my road, and he'll run out after them. And we're like that. We, we cross the line. Our heavenly master says, shall not be crossed. And it's transgression. And then he forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. But then there's the next word, sin, describes imperfections. I just come back from Leave with Character. It's always wonderful every year. It reminds me of all the loose nuts and bolts in the engine of my soul that need tightened up, where I'm failing as a husband, as a father, as a leader in our elders in session. And I always come back with fresh areas to tune up and tighten up. But it can be overwhelming because there's times we feel we're feeling everywhere, and we think, oh, Lord, uh, is there anything good in me? I'm falling short everywhere, and God's goodness will forgive even that. He forgives iniquity, the wicked heart you have. He forgives transgression, deliberate acts of disobedience, and He forgives just our constant falling short of the mark in every area of our life. We're not what we could be, should be, or would be, and God forgives it all to a thousand generations. 
And yet he remembers his, to those who stubbornly hate him, despite his goodness, he remembers his, his judgment to a third and fourth generation. But there are thousands of generations of his goodness. He's more merciful than he is ever vengeful in his wrath and in his, in his judgment. And all of that is summed up in this beautiful little term, um, goodness. Let's go back to Psalm 145. Now, don't panic. This is not a second sermon or the beginning of the real sermon. Um, you have a congregational meeting uh, to vote on. So, let's quickly look at this psalm together. As we said, there are two, sec- two halves of the psalm, the greatness of God and the goodness of God. The greatness of God, one to six or so, and then He turns and and from seven, there's a bridge, and then from eight to the end, there's the goodness of God. Um, and there's two points. The greatness of God is a song for all times and all generations, and the goodness of God is a song for all creatures. First of all, the greatness of God, a song for all times and for all generations. I will extol you, O God, my King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I would bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Why? For great is the Lord, and highly or greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. I want the worship of God to be my eternal preoccupation and my daily preoccupation. Sometimes children of the church will say to me, wouldn't it be boring going to heaven? It's like an eternal worship service where the preacher always forgets to finish. That's a dismal prospect, you might think. If it was me preaching, it would be a dismal prospect. But in heaven, it'll not be that. It'll be delving into the unsearchable greatness and glory of God. How great is God? His greatness is unsearchable, do you see? Unsearchable. Easier for a mosquito to fathom the depths of the cosmos than for you to study and fathom the depths of the greatness of God. Think of little mosquito boys and girls, little tiny mosquito, we'll call him Fred, Fred the mosquito, and you make him a little tiny um, spacesuit and give him a long tank of blood to suck, he's got a long way to go, big tank of blood to keep him, to keep him going, little snacks along the way, and you put him in space and send him off to study the universe. And give him enough time, he could visit every planet, fly through every nebula. Suns would be difficult to be burnt to a crisp, but nonetheless, it's a a, a flame-proof spacecraft. He could weigh every dust, every pebble in Saturn's rings, visit every cave. He could visit every… If you gave him enough time, he could visit every planet in the universe. And he could say at the end of it all, I have seen it all. But the angels, the host of heaven, every human being, give us eternity. We'll never get to the end of studying the heart of God and be able to say, I've seen it all. I've seen enough. Every day there'll be new evidences, new illustrations of the greatness, of the majesty, of the glory of God. William Plummer said, nothing has a more pernicious effect upon our character than low thoughts of God. Unless we have great thoughts of God, our thoughts of sin will be too low, 
our sense of obligation too feeble, and our capacity for praise too dull. What's more, he says, I want this not just to be my eternal um, and daily preoccupation, but I want it to be my familial, my generational proclamation. One generation shall praise your works to another. That family business should be worshiping God, worshiping Him. One of my great regrets as a father, I wish we'd sung more around the piano, the greatness of God. We sing about what matters most to us, and Christian families should sing about God. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shout joyfully of your righteousness. The greatness of God, our eternal and generational preoccupation. And then the goodness of God, a song for all creatures. Oh, it's beautiful. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. And His mercies are over all your works. All your works will give thanks to you. Your godly ones shall bless you. I'm quoting the New American Standard again, but you'll forgive me. This is the goodness of God. His mercies are over all your works. He's righteous in all of His ways. Sorry, the Lord is good to all. If you're here this morning, God has been good to you. One of my elders back in um, Mississippi, Sonny Peaster, Godly old man now, nursing home now, he's gone blind. But when I used to ask him, How, how's it going, Sonny? He'd always say, fish and bread. God's given me fish and bread. It was a reference, of course, to Jesus when he said, what man of you, if a son asks for a stone, if he asks, asks for bread, would give him a stone. If he asks for fish, would give him a serpent. He said, All God ever gives me is fish and bread. On my best day, my worst day fish and bread. God is good to all. Every human being, atheist to saint, can all say, even if they don't, I have tasted the goodness and mercy of God. Goodness and mercy of God. All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. It's universal in scope, and it's regal in effect They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known among the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures to all generations. This goodness of God isn't just there in reality, not just there in God's character. The goodness of God is on the throne and in control of the universe. President Biden isn't in control. That's obvious. God save the Queen, man. (laughs) Lord of mercy. His cabinet aren't in control. The Congress aren't in control. That's also obvious. Um, China's not in control. Russia's not in control. The World Economic Forum, praise the Lord, is not in control. The goodness of God is in control of the cosmos. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet.
God will never cede the throne of the universe to Satan or to wicked men. William Plummer said, No age, no dark corner of the earth, no star, however remote, no man, however puissant, which means powerful, no kingdom, however glorious, is beyond the grasp of him who shakes the heavens with a nod. That's a good nod, too. What kind of kingdom does God have? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It endures to all generations. The next word in the Hebrew, right, it's an alphabetic psalm. There's no N, though, right, which is a problem. Because there's Aleph and Beit and Gimel and the Let and Chivav, Zion, Chet. Those are the Hebrew letters. But there's no non. There's no Hebrew letter N. And sometimes the English translators try to be smarter than God, and they put in N, the bracketed verse, the Lord is faithful in all His ways, words, and kind in all His works, is actually supplied to the Hebrew manuscripts, but the best ones don't have it. There's just no letter N. Why is there no letter N? And the best thing I can say is the writer is a human being, and he got you know, he had A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and he just couldn't get to an N and thought, well, I'll just leave it out. And so it shows you the humanness of Scripture in its perfection. There's perfectly human imperfections in it, though all of the words are true and from God, you understand. But there's, it, 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 there's evidences of it being a human book. Psalm 34, too, is also, Psalm 34 as well, is also an a, um, acrostic psalm, and David leaves out two letters. I forget what they are now in hindsight. But if you ask him, why didn't you leave two letters? He'd say, I was running for my life from Saul and Abimelech, out of Gath, broken teeth, broken nose, Give me a break, man. It's the best I could do under pressure, you know, in no way diminishing the Holy Spirit. But the first, after he speaks about God's everlasting kingdom, the first thing he says is, it's the, what kind of kingdom does God have? It's the kind of kingdom where the weak are helped. Verse 14, the Lord is upholds all who are falling down and raises up all who are bowed down. It's a kingdom where the weak are helped where the hungry are fed, verse 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. It's a, it's a kingdom where the desperate are heard. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. He's near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry, their cry for help, and saves them. It's a kingdom where the desperate are heard and where the wrongs are protected. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. It's a, it's a kingdom where the wronged are protected. It's a beautiful kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. It's a good kingdom. Let's tie this up and get to our congregational meeting. So, there are illustrations of God's goodness everywhere in creation. Like, what kind of a God would design a universe where water freezes in thunderclouds to form ice crystals that are all different? Like, forget the fact He could have fed you with a, a Tesla power cord, just plug yourself in and get your breakfast or with used motor oil 
That could be your Valvoline or Castrol GTX. Those are your two choices. Thanks, Lord. Um, that could have been your breakfast and lunch and dinner. But he gave you this wondrous variety of food and taste and olfactory senses to taste and smell food. Wonderful. Had a, had a, had a fried um, egg, poached egg, at a restaurant in. Get, who'd have thought of frying a toast, a, 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 an egg? But it was wonderful. My goodness. Frying it in kind of batter, beautiful, dipped in this sauce. Lovely. And I can taste it. Glorious. Goodness of God. Well, think about the ice crystals. There was this guy back in 1865 called um, Wilson Snowflake Bentley. He was a bit crazy in, in a good sort of way. He lived in New England, and he had this passion about snowflakes. For 40 years, he devoted himself in the winter to running around in the snow, raucously, joyfully catching snowflakes on chilled slides and photographing them, seeking to capture for others the beauty he saw in those one-of-a-kind masterpieces of frozen crystals. Over his lifetime, he photographed more than 5,000 individual snowflakes. His notes in his diary were effusive. Number 785 is so rarely beautiful, he said. He wrote of the feast of their beauty. There are no shortage of wonders, only a shortage of wonderment, Chesterton said. But the, the, the place you see the goodness of God most clearly on display is on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the darkness of Golgotha, Stephen Charnock said, God granted sinners a more expensive goodness than what was laid out in creation. For it required that God must be made man, eternity must suffer death, the Lord of angels must weep in a cradle, and the creator of the world must hang like a slave. A more expensive goodness. God had to speak to make the universe. He had to bleed and die to redeem your soul. One of my favorite quotes in our Steve May lead with character trip in Gettysburg is standing at the high watermark of the Confederacy. Um, when young Isaac Avery, 34 years of age, Lieutenant Colonel, North Carolina boy, uh, dies. And as he falls on the field of battle, uh, he um, took a twig, broke it off, stick, sticks it in his abdominal wound, and asks for a piece of paper and writes on it, tell my father I died with my face toward the enemy. It's such a, it, it, it always grips me. It's in, the, it's in um, the North Carolina Museum to this day. God's son died with his face toward the enemy, you and me, with the sure and certain hope of making you his friend. And Christ is here this morning. Maybe you're a young man, young woman, or older man, or older woman, you've never embraced him as your Savior. And he's here, he goes, wouldn't you have me to be your friend? 
There's no refuge from me. There's only refuge in me. I will come and be your judge one day. But wouldn't you rather have me as your friend, as your shepherd, as your redeemer, as your savior, as your king? You'll never really know what worship is until you can say, I will extol you, O God, my king. You've got to submit to him before you see his beauty, his glory. There's only goodness in him only sweetness in him. He would die for me and die for you while we were still his enemies to make us his friends. Come to him. Trust him. And maybe, Christian, you're here this morning and you're struggling because life's been bitter. Don't mistake the bitterness of your circumstances for the bitterness of God. Let the wasps out of your soul and receive the goodness and sweetness of God. He designed the snowflake and sent His Son into this world to die as His enemy, that He might make you the enemies of God, His friends, and more than His friends, His sons. Taste and see that God is good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your mercies. They're new every morning. We pray, Lord, that you would come and open our eyes to see and to taste of your goodness this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen.